0: Welcome to episode two of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, and today we have a really exciting topic, hot models. Some of these models are so wonderful, you might even call them supermodels. But unfortunately, they're not the kind that you're going to see on the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition or on America's Next Top Model. These are data models, but they're still really exciting, so don't drop off yet. Give a listen. We're going to talk about third normal form, anchor modeling, data vault, data lakes, data swamps, we're going to try to find out what they do well, what they do badly, and what is the one true data model to rule them all. I'll give you a hint though, it depends, as usual. Now I've gone through a very highly unscientific process as I go through these models and I've assigned a supermodel's name that coincides with the year that the data model was uh, founded. So please, please don't make a big deal about the selection process. It was not elaborate. It was not based on tons and tons of backup data. But if you disagree with who I picked, please leave a comment as to why, and I'd love to have a discussion about that. So we're going to kick things off with the old faithful third normal form model, which has been the foundation of relational database systems since the early 70s when E.F. EFCOD defined it in 1971 while he was working at IBM. Now the basic concept of this can be summed up in one quote, the key, the whole key, and nothing but the key, which is a quote that came from a gentleman named Bill Kent. This is the gold standard for purist relational database design and you can sum it up with three characteristics that each table must follow. It must be in first normal form, it must be in second normal form, and it must have no transitive functional dependencies. So first normal form means that values in a particular field must be atomic. You can't have two values in the same field concatenated. And a single row cannot have repeating groups of attributes like author 1, author 2, author 3. So in addition to that, it has to be second normal form, which means all non-key attributes of the table depend on the primary key. You don't have additional attributes that are unique to a second attribute in the list. And last is there's no transitive functional dependency. An easy example of this would be imagine a table where you have a list of books and their author and the author's nationality. So each book maps to an author and that's fine, but listing the author's nationality in that same row in that same table forms a transitive dependency on book and author nationality. You should really break the author, author nationality out into its own table. Anyway, I know it's gonna be a little bit challenging to follow some of this through a podcast, but I'm gonna have show notes out there on the website, so please check those out as well. So let's take a look at some pros and cons of third normal form. The pros are pretty well known. It's a battle-tested, well-understood modeling approach that has been useful for transactional systems for decades. It's really easy to insert, update, and delete data because of referential integrity that's maintained through this model. And it avoids redundancy. So that requires less space and less points of contact for data changes if you have to go in and update an attribute later. You also have tons of software tools that can automatically create these models, reverse engineer them, analyze them according to the standard, and tell you what does and doesn't meet the criteria to be third normal form. And writing to a third normal form database is very efficient. So really, I mean, this goes back to it being transactional in nature. It's, it's very efficient to do writes there. But some of the drawbacks are it's not as efficient to do reads from a third normal form system. And it's not as clear for end users to get that data because of the increased number of joins that are required. That's why you often see some denormalized reporting tables or you see the data being pulled into data warehouses to address those issues. It's more difficult to produce analytics directly on third normal form data to do things like trends over time or to do period to date aggregation again because of the joins and potentially because of the referential integrity and possibly not having history if the system is not architected to track that. And so what you'll see, like I said before, many transactional systems are slightly denormalized, sometimes for performance, sometimes for auditability or reportability. And as I look through some of these different models, one of the trends that I saw is that some people feel that third normal form is no longer as appropriate of a need when storage is so cheap, compute time is so quick, and a lot of applications interact with each other using APIs instead of having multiple systems or multiple applications reading from the same set of tables. So in the show notes, I've also listed some sources where I've pulled together some of this information. Again, take a look at that and I think it'll be really helpful. And last, but most important about third normal form, the supermodel associated to that is Naomi Sims, who is credited as the first African-American supermodel. So now we're going to switch over to a modeling technique that I don't think many people have heard of. It's called anchor modeling. It's also known as sixth normal form. And the model that closely ties to this is G- Giselle Bunchen, uh, because this was created in 2004 in Sweden. And since 2004, Giselle has been the highest paid model according to Forbes magazine. So the basic concept of this is that it mimics a temporal database in a relational. Uh, database management system. So there are four different uh, attributes and, and ways to model entities in this. You have anchors which are entities or events such as a person. You have attributes which are properties of those anchors. So it could be a person's name, it could be historical like someone's favorite color that changes over time, and you have ties which are relationships between anchors. So going along with our person example siblings would be ties. And the last attribute is shared properties, uh, excuse me, is nots, which are shared properties such as states or reference tables. They're sort of a combination of an anchor and a single attribute with no history provided. So, an example of this would be gender. You only have male and female. Now, what you get with this is a very complicated data model that will have lots of tables, lots of different database objects. But basically, every attribute that's associated to an entity gets its own table. And so that's what 6 normal form essentially is. You don't have multiple attributes listed on a single table. One of the giant benefits of this is it's a very incremental change approach. So previous versions of a schema are always encompassed when you make new changes because you're never going to change that old structure by adding a new attribute or a new entity. So A, backwards compatibility is always preserved. You don't have to unit test or regression test uh, previous versions of an application just because you're adding something. You can also see ha- reduced storage requirements by using, uh, using knots. And this was a bit of a challenge to research and come up with a lot of people using it because it's a pretty niche model. Uh, some of the drawbacks to it are there are many entities created in the database. So you're gonna, like I said, you're going to see lots of tables, lots of objects. Joins become really complicated, and they're going to be very difficult for an end user to understand. And it can be really daunting for new technical resources to come up to speed because of the uh, splintering of all of these attributes. But again, the power of it is... It's incremental approach. So as you'll see when we talk about some of the other models, uh, it would lend itself to database automation, database virtualization. Um, You could do history tracking in this really easily. uh, But you're not going to want end users to be hitting this directly. You're going to have to have some type of views or some type of information marked downstream. It's probably putting this in a more easy to use manner for mass consumption. The next modeling technique that we're going to talk about is one that I'm really intrigued by. It's called Data Vault. A fellow by the name of Dan Lindstedt developed this starting in the early 90s and he published the first version of his methodology known as Data Vault 1.0 in 2000 as an ebook. He published an updated version to this called Data Vault 2.0 in 2013. The methodology is proprietary and Dan restricts who can train others by maintaining the copyright on the methodology and requiring those people that train to be Data Vault certified. You can still implement Data Vaults. You can use these techniques. There's a good bit of information out there. You just can't train others on it without being certified. So the basic concept here is that you have a single version of the facts, not a single version of the truth. And as Dan said in some of his early uh, publications, you get all the data all the time. So the concept behind this is that there are three primary structures and supporting structures uh, and some additional supporting structures to build out a data vault. The primary structures are hubs, links, and satellites. So a hub is a list of unique business keys that change incredibly infrequently and there are no other descriptive attributes about it. The only thing that you'll see in this table is the business key, a surrogate key, and you might see some metadata about load times and data sources, but going back to like an example of a person, uh, you're gonna have the unique business identifier for a person, so it could be a social, it could be an auto-generated number, but you're not gonna have their date of birth, you're not gonna have their place of birth or anything like that. Uh, And one of the uh, examples that we can use to tie hubs, links, and satellites together is think of a hub as a car or a driver of a car. Links are relationships between hubs. They're the second major structure. These only define the link between entities and can easily support many-to-many relationships. They inherently do that with the way that they're modeled. There are no descriptive attributes on these tables, again, other than metadata like load times and data sources. So an example of a link would be A link between a car hub and a driver hub to show the drivers of cars and it could be many to many because you could have a husband and wife with two cars and each driver could drive both of the cars now the last primary structure that you have are satellites and satellites can attach to hubs or they can attach to links and they're all the descriptive attributes about the entity to which they connect so a satellite for the car hub could describe the year, the make, the model, the current value. This is going to differ from anchor modeling because year, make, model, those would all be separate uh, tables in an anchor model but they can all be on one satellite structure here and they very often have some sort of effective dating uh, to track history. So outside of these you might have some supporting structures like reference tables or point-in-time bridge tables to aid querying or show what the most current Uh, version of a set of attributes is, but at its core you have hubs, links, and satellites and that's the only type of types of structures that you have. There are some general best practices that come along with this. Uh, One of them is separating attributes from different source systems into their own satellites, at least in a raw data vault. And I say raw data vault because in uh, a lot of the implementations that you read about it's very common for a business to create a raw data vault that captures all of the raw data from all sources exactly as it came and it tracks changes over time and then they may have an information mart or an information data vault downstream that actually merges data from different systems optimizes it for reporting Uh, but the core raw data vault which is what we're talking about maintains every attribute from separate sources in separate entities Uh, So that you can pull in data from new systems over time with minimal changes to what's already there. Um, You preserve history and auditability. So if you ever need to see what came in from a particular system when you'll have that ability to do that. You generally will track changes to all elements so that your data vault contains a complete history of all changes from the time that it was implemented. So you'll very often see change data capture enabled on source systems and every change of every record gets piped over to the data vault now this sounds like a lot of data and it is but there are good reasons to have that another best practice is that you can start small with a few sources and you can grow over time you don't have to have a big bang approach and you can see some quick wins, some low-hanging fruit uh, to prove the worth of the data vault and Going back to the earlier best practices, since you're pulling in data from different systems and keeping it segregated, you can layer in new sources over time. And it's acceptable to add new satellites when changes occur in the source system. So if a new attribute is added to a source, you can add that same attribute to an additional satellite in your data vault. This complicates the data model a little bit, but what it also does is allows you to iteratively develop your ETL without breaking previous ETL routines that you already created and tested. So you won't have to regression test the things that you already did. You would just have to unit test and deploy the new satellite that you're working on. So I want to talk a little bit about Data Vault 2.0, which is uh, the new changes that came out in 2013. So Data Vault 1.0 was merely the model, talking about the hubs, the links, the satellites, and the approaches to naming standards and where you put things. Data Vault 2.0 is a more holistic modeling approach Uh, so from a data model standpoint one of the things that it did differently than data vault 1.0 is numeric ids are replaced with hash values and they're created in the staging area before you bring things into the raw data vault Um, and that supports better integration with NoSQL repositories Um, because hashes are used you can parallelize data loads even further than you could in data vault 1.0 or other implementations because you don't have to do any kind of lookup of a surrogate ID in the raw data vault. If you've already got the business key from a source system, you can hash it and bring that in. So what that means is you could actually load hubs, links, and satellites at the same time, or you could load satellites beforehand. And the way that you can do that is another key tenant of this is referential integrity is disabled during loading. So that, again, allows you to parallelize things more. You can load satellites before the hub value is actually there. Uh, Another part of Data Vault 2.0 is there are recommended architectures around the staging area, around the Data Vault itself, around the downstream marts, around virtualization, and how you integrate NoSQL uh, data into a Data Vault 2.0 architecture. There's also methodology recommendations around Agile, Six Sigma, capability maturity model, total quality management. Um, so he tried to expand it from just the model to an entire approach to how you how you do things. So summing up some of the pros and cons about this, uh, one is that it preserves all the data all the time, like Dan Lindstedt said. This provides tremendous capability for analysis and responding to changing data, changing business needs. It allows you to obtain data from multiple sources iteratively and preserves backwards compatibility. It works extremely well with massively parallel processing, databases, and hardware. Um, It can be loaded very quickly, particularly when you use the 2.0 modeling approach. And it works extremely well with ETL and data warehouse automation and virtualization tools. There are actually some tools out there that are already structured to uh, engineer data vault architectures for you and build ETL routines. Uh, And there's a lot of training out there on Informatica and some examples of SSIS, where you can actually uh, feed it metadata and have it build the entire ETL routines, including the tracking of changes uh, and publishing effective dated records into each of the entities. And lastly, Data Vault 2.0 covers a wide spectrum of modeling needs from stages, marts, methodology, all those things I covered. So it's more than just a model and how you uh, model attributes. It's an entire soup to nuts methodology that you could take and you could implement on a project or with a client. Now let's talk about some of the downsides here. So one of the downsides is the data model can spawn lots of tables, just like with anchor modeling, and it can make queries very complicated very quickly probably less objects here than an anchor model, but um, you still get quite a few, particularly when you have multiple source systems coming in or you have source systems that have changed over time and you've created uh, iterative satellites to handle that. So the raw data mart becomes a place to store all of this data, but it's really not meant for end users to query or explore directly. You might have some power users, maybe some data scientists that would be hitting it directly But your regular day-to-day business analyst or canned reports would not be sourcing their data directly from this. They would likely be reading from a downstream mark. Iterative additions make the data model more complicated. We've covered that several times. But um, the benefit is less regression testing. The drawback is a more complicated model. And a lot of people like this model because they say that storage is so cheap but even though it is, keeping all of the changes for all of the data in all of your sources can lead to data sprawl. And depending on how frequently that data changes, you might be tracking tons and tons of changes with no intention of ever using that. So you kind of have to balance that and see what makes sense. Um, It also, the more changes that you track, the more need for either a downstream business data vault or business information mart basically become necessities. And the last drawback that I want to talk about is that a raw data vault is not cleansed um, and data from multiple sources are not blended so it's raw as it came like like they said facts not it's a single source of facts not a single source of truth. Now one of the concepts that I've read about a lot while I've been researching data vault and I really like is because you have all of the changes since you started your data vault in your raw data mart, excuse me, in your raw data vault, if you have a downstream information mart that needs to change and you need to change the way that it's modeled or you need to bring in uh, attributes differently or you need to change fundamentally the way that entities are architected, that's very hard to do if you don't have the data saved from source systems, If if the data has disappeared or you, you didn't pull additional attributes that need to be added to the mart. In previous projects where I've encountered that, we've had to go back to the source system, do some kind of major extraction, bring that in, somehow integrate it into the existing mart, or somehow drop the mart and rebuild it from scratch. Because you maintain all of the changes over time in a raw data vault, you can actually virtualize the building of a downstream mart. So if that needed to change, you could drop it over a weekend and build it entirely new from scratch, stepping through every day since the Data Vault's inception to populate the information mart. So you can maintain your trend analysis, you can maintain your period date reporting, but you can expand it to change the structure or add additional attributes. So this is one of the truly powerful features of Data Vault that I see. And one of the benefits from keeping all of that data for so long. Um, You could have data that's rapidly ingested into a a data vault. And you could rebuild your information marts nightly if if you have the speed to do that. Or over a weekend if you needed to sort of batch information into it. So really intriguing approach. Ability to do lots of things with the data vault. Earns data vault the association with Heidi Klum as the supermodel. Uh, who was extremely popular back in 2000 when Data Vault was first published and debuted on the scene. Now, our last two models are closely associated to each other. Uh, The first one is Data Lake, which was a term coined by Pentaho CTO James Dixon in a blog post he made in 2010 referring to Pentaho's data architecture approach to storing data in Hadoop. So, year 2010, we're going to call this one Brooklyn Decker. Basic concept of this is it's a massive big data repository typically stored on Hadoop and HDFS and key points of it are that it's schemaless data is written to the lake in its raw form without cleansing uh, it ingests different types of data so it could be relational data event based data documents it could take it in in, in batch format or in real time streaming Uh, Best practice is that you have some kind of automated metadata management to catalog the data that's coming in and to track available attributes, the last times they were accessed, data lineage, data quality, Uh, and typically multiple products are used to load data into the data lake as well as read from it. So you'll see a lot of uh, different technologies from ETL tools and scripts to reporting tools and data visualization tools. Another key is that it gives you rapid ability to ingest new data sources because there are not a lot of uh, constraints onto what you bring in or the format. And typically a data lake is only a destination. It's not usually a source from which operational systems will source data. So it's not, it's not a hub in a wheel where different source systems or different transactional systems are spokes uh, branching off of this. So the pros of this approach are that it's useful when you don't know what attributes will be needed or used. Uh, It's schema on read, not schema on write. So you can ingest any type of data and allow different users to assess value during analysis. It allows you extremely large scale at low to moderate costs. So it's different from a lot of the traditional relational methodologies. Uh, where you have to grow your hardware pretty significantly as you get into you know, petabyte scale and things like that. And it can and will use a variety of tools and technologies to analyze and visualize and massage data into a useful form. So that is a pro because you're not limited to a specific vendor or a specific technology that the developer that started this or the, the person who came up with the initial idea had. Um, It's very open in terms of what you can use to get data in and get data out. Now the cons of this, and this will kind of lead into the, the next modeling approach, is that it can be seen as a vast wasteland of disorganized data, particularly if you don't have good metadata to tell people what's there and what's most valuable. Consumers must understand the raw data in various systems to know how to integrate and cleanse it in order to derive meaningful information. And there's a high likelihood that different consumers will perform very similar operations to retrieve data. So you might have some overlap, some duplication of efforts, uh, and slight differences in the way that people do very similar routines can lead to reconciling differences down the line. That's something that you see really commonly uh, when there are multiple sources of truth. It's something that you know, historically has led to people wanting a data warehouse that is a single source. Uh, when two people are going after the same data but they end up doing it slightly differently, they use slightly different filters or calculations, and then they have to reconcile between each other as you integrate them if they're two different business units that have to be reported up to a corporate structure or if it's uh, you know two different entities that hand off results from one to another at the end of the month or at the end of the year. you know It always leads to reconciling differences and so you have a, a bit higher risk of that In something like a data lake. You also have uncleansed data and you have multiple versions of the same data um, which can lead to duplication if it's not handled and filtered correctly. So if somebody's just coming out there because they see that the data is available but they don't realize uh, how it's being written, how often, um, what the maintainability of it is, you know there's risks there that uh, people can inadvertently craft mistakes into their reports. Uh, One of the most uh, significant drawbacks of it, uh, and some people I'll probably get some flack for this, but it isn't SQL. So some users will have to use more than just SQL to derive useful information. So they may have to use MapReduce, they may have to use a tool like Spark or Hive, or they may have to use scripts to get the data that they want. And one thing that I found in my research is there's a lot of uh, momentum around data lakes as an alternative uh, to staging areas or a, a place where you can offload some of your ETL into a transactional system. You can just dump your raw data here, keep it, pull it into your data warehouse when you need it. Um, but what some people have found is offloading ETL into a data lake can require significant rework of existing processes to move to something different like Hive. So If you have a lot of developers who are using SSIS or Informatica or something like that and they're very used to pulling data from transactional systems and writing it to other uh, reporting solutions like a traditional data warehouse, then just wholesale saying we're going to go to a data lake because storage is cheaper and we can just dump anything we want there is fraught with peril. Uh, Again, we talked about using... Lots of tools and technologies, and that can be a very good thing, but it can also lead to training and supportability challenges if it's not governed properly, and uh, you just have a sprawl of tools pop up, and then they're handed off to, uh, you know, IT or someone to have to support. Another key drawback is data curation can be very challenging. So knowing how to integrate the data um, between different sources because it can lack structure. And there may not be a lot of help from a data dictionary or anything like that on how to integrate it, can make it very difficult. And so, when you see a data lake, a Brooklyn Decker, um, that's well crafted, you know, it can lead to uh, really good analytic capabilities. But when you see it go downhill, or metadata is not maintained, or people just start throwing, all the data they can into it. You turn from a data lake to a data swamp. So I'm not going to include a lot of history here because it's basically an extension of a data lake gone bad. Um, It's something that may have so much raw data that you don't know where to go for insights. It may be a combination of several of the challenges, like poor maintenance, poor documentation, no metadata. Um, when you start tracking all of this data from all these different sources but you don't know who's using what, you don't know how to merge data sets, you don't know how to use most of the data in your data lake, you've really got a data swamp. So trying to look at a data swamp, if you find yourself in this, you're in the middle of uh, you know, the Florida Everglades and you don't know how you got there, a few pros are you must have done something right to get all the data in the repository. So you you know a lot of data is better than no data, right? And you haven't lost data that you can't go back and get. And lastly, you know this is one of the more emerging uh, trends. So if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. But if you've already gotten so much data into a data lake and and you don't know what to do with it, at least you're farther ahead on the curve than some people. Uh, the downsides to it are you know pretty obvious, but a few of the key ones are you've likely spent a lot of time and effort putting data into the data lake into HDFS using Hive things like that. Um, You might be struggling to operate it at scale and trying to get the gains that are advertised by a lot of vendors or to answer the questions that you set out to answer. Um, So one of the keys is you need metadata to clue users into what is most useful, relevant, and recent. And the last thing is you might need to look into key use cases, some of that low-hanging fruit like we talked about in some of the earlier methodologies, and start from that as a point. Uh, to begin begin resuscitating the the swamp and trying to turn it back into a lake. So you may have to just put on your blinders and ignore some of the noise and funnel through to something that's really useful and prove that out and then figure out how you can draw in more data or take that approach to some of the other data that you have there. So I've got to assign a name to this. Not really going to go through an explanation, but like I said, after some unscientific Googling, if I had to attribute a model's name to Data Swamp, I'm going with Tyra Banks. So that wraps it up for this survey of hot models. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about them and hearing about what they do well and what they don't do well. I'd love for you to uh, you know, chime in on comments if there's something that you think I got wrong or something that you disagree with or if there's just a model that you think is better than any of the others or better for the majority of use cases. Please let me know. I'd be happy to learn about any other methodologies that I didn't include here. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are some other ones. I just pulled out some of the ones that I've heard a lot about or I've researched or seem to be most pervasive in the news today. So again, thanks for joining me. Um, please check out the show notes online. Please follow us on Twitter at Love of Data and uh, subscribe on the podcast if you haven't already. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode.